Hey, welcome everybody to the Gun.io Frontier Podcast. I'm Ledge, VP of Services, and today I am joined by Kelly Stevens, who is the uh, VP of Engineering for OneSpace. OneSpace is a SaaS platform that combines consumer search insights, performance monitoring tools, and content optimization to help brands achieve the perfect digital shelf by responding to market changes and making product page updates with speed and at scale. Kelly is an established technology executive with a passion for data and using analytics to uncover opportunities and drive business decisions. We are excited to talk to her today. Welcome, Kelly. Hello, how's it going? Thank you for joining us. It's good to have you. So off off camera, off mic, you and I talked a little bit about your journey. I thought it was a fantastic story. Uh, you know, growing up from the developer track, you know, into the technology leadership track. And I think that's something that appeals to a lot of the people, you know, both on the client and on the freelancer side, you know, folks that we work with. And one thing you said that really struck me was, you know, that as a leader that, you know, first of all, you weren't really an expert or weren't allowed to be an expert really in any one thing because you had to have uh, a broad swath of subject matter expertise. And that one important part of evolving into a VP of engineering role was really learning about what was actually important to the success of the team. You had many potential priorities and there were some things that you found could be ignored early on and some things that weren't. And at the end of that journey, what matters in the end? And I wonder if you could you could talk about that, you know, from the the picture of your journey. Yeah, I mean, what what matters? Uh, <laughs> you know, I think that at the start of it, you know, coming from being a, an, an engineer who, you know, kind of had my area of expertise to evolving to my, my leadership position. I think the biggest challenge is recognizing that you can't be an expert in everything. And so what ma- that's what matters. And then what matters is learning enough that you're knowledgeable across a multitude of disciplines within engineering. Um, so I oversee IT and product engineering and our solutions engineering. Uh, and so, it, you know, being aware and uh, educated in all of those areas, but then um, knowing enough about each area so that you can lead the team, but recognizing you don't have to be an expert. That, that's hard because when you come from an area where you are an expert, it's very uncomfortable sometimes when you feel like you don't know all the answers. Did you find it was easy or difficult to assemble people to fill in the gaps? Did, did you know what the gaps were as you were scaling the company? No, you don't always know your gaps until until you're in a until you're in a tough position. Uh, we've always been fortunate that we've had a small team. Hmm. We've had a small team of incredibly smart engineers and incredibly smart people. Uh, we've always kind of classified ourselves as scrappy, which if you're f- talking about a startup world, you need to be scrappy because you don't have all the money to invest in all of the different resources. And so early on, I don't think we knew what we didn't know. Um, right. You never know what you don't know. And so we didn't know what gaps we had. And so you, you did, you made the best with what you had along the way. And you know, sometimes that required myself getting my hands dirty. Uh, and, and getting down to the, the details of things to, you know, asking other team members to, you know, go into a deep, dark hole to learn something new or to just peel back that onion of, uh, you know, if you're investigating an issue, like you have to get like deep down to the deepest, darkest layers uh, and try everything you can. So, but fast forward to now, you know, 
over time, you do learn your gaps. You know, the need for, for DevOps and, and monitoring your system and logging, like recognizing that that was a huge gap that we had and we didn't have the expertise in-house to fill that. Um, you know, we learned over time and filled those roles. Right, right. And you talked about, I love this, you know, sort of playing whack-a-mole for finding errors and fixing things kind of in production and, and then maybe evolving to a data-driven approach to uh, specifically logging errors at every level of a distributed services system where, you know, you might say, well, hey, there's a 500 error. Where did that come from? And um, not being able to know that and sort of digging in by hand versus maybe even preemptively knowing that. And how has that changed both technically and culturally for your team? It sounds like, you know, maybe there were some old habits and behaviors that needed to be broken. Yeah, I mean, you rewind. I think I've been in the position almost five years. We were a monolithic architecture, so a single dot that application. Pretty easy to debug and, and find, you know, when there was an error in the system, it pretty much told you exactly what line it was on. And that was very easy to, to fix. Two, you know, we grew over time. Um, we had a single engineer who was kind of uh, in charge of monitoring our database. When he departed the company, it became very evident that he was kind of keeping the ship afloat <laughs> behind the scenes. And all of a sudden, all these issues started kind of bubbling up to the surface. We started seeing more errors. We started seeing more disruption in the system. System. And I felt very blind at that moment. I had no idea where to look like, oh, hey, the web, the website's loading slow. Well, great. What's actually causing it to load slow and, and, and why? We didn't really have any insights there. So we had slow, you know, we slowly started building logging there and monitoring, you know, against our database because that seemed like the hot button place to look at. To, to fast forward to now, we are a I wouldn't call us a microservices architecture, but we're definitely a services architecture. We're distributed. We have, I mean, probably 50 to 100 servers running in our environment, um, running different services. And we have five different uh, applications into our platform that are used by a variety of different users. And it is very difficult now to trace issues without the proper logging in place. And so two years ago, when we kind of when we launched this new architecture, we quickly learned the importance of monitoring and logging. And then we kind of had to play catch up over the last two years, but we've invested a lot of time in both the tooling and just in our development practices to make sure that we're, we're tracing errors all the way through the system so that when we get a 500 error, we can now know it came from this layer in, in the platform and we can more easily diagnose where it came from because back to the monolithic architecture, you don't get those nice little, hey, on a line you know, 302 in this file, there was an error. It's just not as, that exists somewhere in the hierarchy of error logging, but they get lost along the way. Right, right. So you need to aggregate all those errors into one standard type of, of tooling then. Uh, what specifically, like what, what's the best practice on, on tooling as far as, you know, you're concerned it there? What has worked for you? Yeah, so we, uh, I mean, there's, there's kind of three aspects to it. There's actual logging in the code. And then um, we're using Sumo Logic as one of the tools to kind of just, you know, feed out all of the, the raw logs. And then we have another tool that is a visualization tool. Uh, you know, it's kind of like the BI tool on top of all of the logs, plus all of the other monitoring we have in the system that's, you know, available through AWS, SQL Server, um, MongoDB. This all feeds into Datadog. 
and Datadog provides those visualizations. We have all different types of dashboards. We have live dashboards. We have historical dashboards. We have very specific dashboards for you know different things you want to look at. But the, the, really, the two that we look at are the live dashboard and historical. The live kind of alerts us to how is our current system uh, performing as of right now? Are we experiencing any issues? And Datadog has the ability to automate alerts to us. Um, and then, you know, of course, we have it up on a t we, we have it up on a TV in front of us, so we can see things start flashing red when there's uh, issues, or we see certain graphs that typically are flat; they're suddenly spiking. Uh, so we have this visual reminder on top of you know the automated email alerts and our on-call person getting a, a text message. Uh, but then in turn, we also have the historical graphs. So those kind of come into play. So we see an issue on the board that looks out of the ordinary, but is it really out of the ordinary or is this just a pattern that we're seeing? Um, and sometimes patterns are good and sometimes you discover patterns are really, really bad. Right. And you uh, at some point in time, you see that there's a, there's a problem occurring. You know it's growing. You know you're going to reach kind of a boiling point of the system just crashing, uh, but you don't really know how to articulate what the problem is, and you don't know how to quantify it. And when you're back to the, to the startup world where you're scrappy and you have very few resources, it, it's hard to ask the leadership team or the exec team, hey, we need to invest time in tech debt or we need to invest time in this right. performance area because they don't necessarily see the impact of that. They don't see the, uh, the immediate relief. They don't, they're not seeing the errors behind the scenes. They don't see it until it's a problem. They don't see it until it's a complete database failure and the system's down for three days, which happened to us two years ago. Right, right. Um, yeah, the, the real story is that you know, and, and you only know that after it costs you a lot of money. And, and yet you talked about, you know, sort of from the leadership seat uh, that you had a sort of sixth sense of things are going to fall apart here, uh, but you couldn't quantify it without the proper tooling. Correct. So, you know, during this time leading up to when we had what I call classify a catastrophic database failure where our system was down for three days, not pleasant. Um, leading up to that, you know, we had all kinds of signals along the way. The sites were loading slower. We were seeing more errors. We are getting more reports of issues from our users. We could, we could see things happening in SQL Server, but like I said, we didn't have a, have a way to quantify it. We didn't have a way to pinpoint exactly what the issue was until it became so unnoticeable that you had to address it. And that was kind of the, the launching point of, you know, got everybody's attention and, you know, you had to put together, we had to put together a plan of like how we're going to prevent this to the future in the future. And now, now today, that's why we've spent the last two years investing in all these tools. And now when we do have that sixth sense, we can go back and say, okay, what are we seeing from, from history? How, what is the performance of our system over time? Are we seeing uh, something change? significantly out of the ordinary or is this just a blip and now we have ways to trace it back to are we seeing increased usage of our platform which in turn could could impact things and in that case maybe that's okay or is a you know is there a specific query that's you know growing in execution time 
we can see those things now. And now we can try to get ahead of those before they become problems. And uh, it, it's just, it's great to see and have that insight, which in turn, when we're doing planning for the year, quarterly planning, and it's asked, we're like, hey, we need time for technical debt. Mm-hmm. One, we have something, we have data that we can point to to say why we want to do it. But also when it comes to the end of the quarter or the end of the year, and we invest all of this time and money in tech debt and performance uh, improvements, we actually have dashboards that reflect the progress that we've made. And that has probably been the most exciting part is we actually get to see the impact of what, we, what we've done. Yeah, I bet that's true. That's got to be really good for team culture. I wonder, what would your advice be to, to someone who hasn't hit the catastrophic failure yet, but probably you know, has that sense and is unable to articulate that. I mean, what you'd like to do at any business, even a scrappy startup would like to do is say, I just need just enough investment mm-hmm. to avoid the three-day downtime that has, you know, six-figure revenue impact or whatever it is. What's, what's the advice there on getting ahead of that in a way that, that you can communicate to the check writers? Yep. Uh, you know, I'll speak a little bit from the business perspective, too, because I feel like I'm involved in that level. Um, my advice really for any startup or really anybody in this type of position is, you know, we have to make tough decisions every day. And you, you do have to find that balance. And sometimes you have to make difficult ones. But always make, make sure that you're making informed decisions. Make sure that if you're truly saying, hey, we need to make this trade-off and we're not going to invest in this area, make sure that if you're not the technical person, that you are educated in what that means. What are the actual impacts? What is the worst that can happen? And be aware of that. And that's that's kind of where we have arrived in our organization when I work with our CEO and COO. It's just making sure that they're aware of what is the worst can happen and making sure that everybody's on the same page and then accepting that risk. If you're comfortable with the risk, then by all means make those difficult choices. Um, but if you don't, if you don't understand what the risk is or, uh, or you're not comfortable with it, then that's where you kind of have to have that discussion and figure out what your next steps are uh, to, to solve it. I, I wonder, would you, which you have said, so that catastrophic problem probably cost a great deal of, of revenue and, and heartache and time and, and things of that nature. Um, would that more than have paid for doing the right things first? <laughs> um, you know, that, that's a difficult question. So our, our platform is unique. And so... Aren't they all? <laughs> it, during that outage, um, I would say... Revenue-wise, it wasn't as significant of an impact as some businesses would have. So our end users are mainly internal users and our freelancers who are completing the work on our platform on behalf of our clients. Mm-hmm. So when, when we're down, it just kind of it slightly delays that project, but the uniqueness of the work. So that was a risk that we knew was there. So why weren't we investing a lot of time and why was this hard to sell to the, to, you know, the executive team or to the general team of why would we invest time on technical debt or this type of thing versus uh, building new features? Well, the new features are needed in order to onboard the new clients, but the, the worst case scenario of the system being down 
wasn't so terrible for our business. Not great. Um, nobody wants that to happen, but the, the risk there uh, was worth that. Now we hit that and then, you know, you realize that, okay, it's not fun, just the investment of everyone in the distraction. And so there's another inherent risk that you don't always identify or quantify, but that's just really the distraction to the actual business and the team. So you may have had these plans, you deprioritize tech debt, you deprioritize performance improvements, but, and you focus on the features, but now you hit that point where you have to deal with it. And while the system was down for three days, there was the time leading up to it before it officially went down. And there's the time after it trying to diagnose exactly what happened and then coming up with a plan to fix it and trying to prevent it for the future. So it, sometimes it ends up being more costly in the long run to ignore those things, even if you're going to accept the risk. Right, right. How do you divide your resources, uh, human time-wise, across dealing with technical debt versus uh, dealing with new features? Have you found a way to uh, split time, you know, same individuals working on each type of thing to get broader coverage and sort of knowledge transfer? Or do you go the other way and say, you know, there's some people that are really good bug crushers, um, some people that are, you know, good at new features? Like, how, do you, how do you thread that? Yeah, that's that's a very interesting question. I'd say something that we actually still struggle with as a, a team and organization. We have tried a lot of different things over time. Uh, to your to one of your questions of like, are some people good bug crushers and some people you know good feature developers? One hundred percent, absolutely. There is a special type of developer out there who is comfortable navigating the unknown, who's comfortable working in large systems, and they're not worried whether or not they're an expert and everything. They're not worried if they, they know all of the technologies. They just enjoy the fun of getting in there, tracing things, and, and learning. Like, and that's, that's one type of developer, and I, I say a special type of developer. I've only, I only encountered a couple of them over time, at least in people that I've worked with. And then, yeah, then there are good, great feature developers. To date, um, you know, like I said, I've encountered a couple people that are really good at the bug crushers. They inherently in our organization have been promoted into leadership positions because I think of the nature of how they work. Um, so they don't have as much time to crush those things. Our team now is composed of great feature developers and, um, we're kind of struggling on the bug front and, and, and whatnot because our system is distributed across so many different technologies and so many different layers. Uh, each developer right now kind of has their area of expertise and it seems difficult for them to kind of branch out. Like if they're a front end developer and they're really comfortable with uh, JavaScript and kind of the front end of PHP and, and Node and then uh, you know, if a bug is in the deep layers, they're not so comfortable branching out of their uh, areas. What we have found, like, how do we split time? Well, one, it's, it's a discussion. It is a constant fight, no matter what, even with all this data, to fight for the time to work on tech debt and, um, and performance. What we have found is that, you know, once you get the buy-in, you do have to have the tracking. So we, we do have a, you know, decent-sized bug backlog that's been kind of plaguing us for a long time. 
And the way we, what we found successful over the last couple quarters in order to be able to commit the time, but also, you know, showcase that we're actually making progress is, you know, we just dedicate that we want to put 25% of our time towards bugs and we use the agile process. So when we uh, forecast our points, kind of take 25% off of the point balance, kind of leaving this general bug bucket. We don't point bugs because bugs are very hard to point. They can be one point, um, you know, based on what our team is, or they can be, you know, 50 points. You just have no idea uh, how long and how big bugs are. And so we just kind of time box them. We say, hey, engineers, we think it's going to take, you know, an hour to work on this bug. If someone's exceeding that hour, then, you know, that's the point at which you, you know, say, hey, I'm going to, you know, surface that this bug is much bigger or harder to diagnose than I thought. And, you know, then we can make the proper decision from there whether or not it's something that we want to spend time on. Some bugs, you have no choice. They're, they're critical bugs. You have to solve them. But other bugs, they're in some cases nice halves or maybe you think it's high or something you really want to address but once you start learning like hey someone's not going to be able to solve this in a day people quickly can go uh yeah that's not that big of a deal we'll we'll deal with that issue that's when it becomes a feature right yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) or yeah you redo the whole concept right right absolutely okay so i want to know as you move to a distributed architecture distributed services did you find more and more that the bugs became more abstracted into the ops layer? I've heard other people discuss that, that in fact, DevOps becomes more and more recursively important because what we perceive as a bug and a performance issue moves more and more into the uh, inter-services ops layer. Have you found that to be the case? A- absolutely. Um, it... <laughs> it, it it 100% has, and I'm trying to like quantify <laughs> the importance here. I mean, there are just so many moving parts in distributed systems like this, and, and so many different technologies that uh, you know the proper monitoring there, the making sure that you you know from a from a hosting perspective are provisioned correctly to to monitor. Like you have like you're not just monitoring you know a couple of uh, you know, web servers on a load balancer and kind of monitoring their performance. You're now monitoring each individual service and making sure that they're provisioned properly. Is it time for them to, uh, is it time for you to, you know, up the, the memory on the machine or use a different type of machine? We use AWS. So, you know, you have all kinds of choices of memory optimized and uh, storage optimized, depending on your purposes there. On top of just all the the messaging technology underneath and uh, monitoring that and making sure that's implemented correctly. And that's, I think one of the most difficult things across having distributed services, is making sure everything's in sync, everything's on the right versions, because it's very, you, you always want to use the latest and greatest of, of a new version or a new package of something. But if your others, all of a sudden you realize that you, you're using this new package over here, but it's now not compatible with the other one, other packages, and you need to upgrade everything. It's just, it's that type of learning that you don't realize out of the gate. There, there's more maintenance involved than you would ever imagine uh, at first. You think, oh, okay, great. Yeah, we're going to just stand up the server over here for this service and this server here. 
and suddenly you wake up one day and you've got 50, 50 servers and all running different packages and now you need to make them all in sync and it just be, it, we just went through that kind of pain point and I won't call it a nightmare, but it's, you, know, you, you think, oh, okay, I'll just upgrade this package. Great. But then you, again, you just find all these layers that aren't compatible or little tweaks you have to make to the code to, to make it work. Right. Which brings all kinds of uh, quality assurance and regression problems and things of that nature too. Correct. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we could go on forever. I appreciate the expertise and uh, want to respect your time. Closing statement for all those uh, budding technology leaders out there. What would you want them to know? Want them to know. Um, there's a time and a place for tech deck and performance and it, you will always have to fight. You will always have to fight for the time. Uh, it's not easy as a technology leader. You, all, you always want to invest as much time as you can in it, but you do have to realize the balances of the business. And so make sure that you do your best to get your data, get your facts in order. It's a much easier fight and discussion to have when you have the, the facts in place and the data there. And, you know, just recognize that it's a balance and you can't get it all, but just find the right place and the right time to ask for it. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Kelly. We appreciate your time. It's good spending time with you and uh, we will uh, make sure everybody's looking out for one space and trying to get those uh, digital shelves in order. Yep. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.